Welcome to Litigation Strategies, the podcast that discusses all things litigation. From filing a small claims lawsuit, closing arguments in a murder trial, we dive into handling a case from the beginning to the end. Your co-hosts are Daniel Coble and myself, Joe Berry, former assistant solicitors for the Fifth Judicial Circuit and currently in private practice. We're pleased to have you with us, and now, this episode of Litigation Strategies. Take all the little pieces, all the facts, all of the evidence that's been presented to you. Put it together and use your common sense. Use your common sense to see a clear picture of what happened March 2019. The clothing, talked about that at night. Where the body was found a mile from his house. All the videos showing the Impala driving around, her getting in the car, Mountain Brook, all the trash is found there, the blood, the knife, all the things tying him to that location. The forensic analysis of the phones, the fingerprints, the handwriting, the autopsy. When the smoke is clear, the picture comes clearly into focus. A clear picture. What happened? And there is only one reasonable conclusion that you can make when you clear up that picture. Welcome to Litigation Strategies. Today's podcast, we have a very special guest, the Deputy Solicitor of the Fifth Judicial Circuit and mine and Joe Barry's former boss, Dan Goldberg. Look, guys, I'm just excited to be here with two of the finer legal minds of the Midlands and of our state. So it's a Friday. It's a beautiful day. There's some big college football games this weekend. And I'm, and on, a podcast, and I'm on a podcast with Boogie and the Bees. I mean, that's what right. else do I need? Today, you know, when Joe and I talk about our experience, you know, we're the solicitor's office for about five years over there each, and we learned it all from – the senior attorneys over there, and the, the deputy solicitor, Dan Goldberg, taught us a lot. Dan, you and I were, we had a couple of trials together, and I know Joe had a few, and so you kind of taught us not just in the courtroom how to interact, how to win cases, but also, you know, 99% of the cases are pled, and you got to work out deals, how to negotiate, and how to deal with attorneys. So we want to talk about trial work and, you know, getting into trial, but before we get into that, kind of give us your philosophy because I talk with young prosecutors. I tell them, you know, who to look up to, who to kind of follow. And obviously you're at the top of that list. What's your advice to young prosecutors or even public defenders about dealing with attorneys? Well, I appreciate the kind words. And obviously, you know, the time when you guys were there, we, we had a good time in this office. So it was a good group. It was a good group now, but it, it was fun then when y'all were there. And, and, you know, that was the great thing about working in that office while y'all were there was, you know, we had fun, but we also like to work and you guys like to learn as well. So, which is evidenced by the great things that y'all are doing now. And so, you know, I would say with the young, younger generation, I mean, it's about absorbing as much information as you can. Talking to senior prosecutors, talking to, to experienced defense attorneys. I mean, just because you're on one side or the other doesn't mean you can't talk to the other side. There's a lot of things that you can learn about the craft and the practice of law from the other side and it obviously makes you better. So the more you can observe from talking to people, having mentors inside and outside the office, and of course, observing court that is an invaluable experience of, you know, even if you're having trouble getting into trial, go watch the 
criminal sexual conduct trial that's going on. Go watch the burglary trial. There's a lot that you can learn from that. And then when the time is right, when the trial's over, you can go back and talk to the lawyers, not while the jury's out, but, you know, after the fact, be like, hey, let me ask you, why did you do this? Can you explain that to me? And, and there's a lot to be gained from that. Yeah, that's and that's exactly right. Just watching the trials and watching, you know, how it gets done. And, and speaking of that, you've been a... How long have you been at the solicitor's office? Now? I have been here since November of 2003, so almost 18 years in the office, and I've been a lawyer for 16 of those years. I started in, as a lawyer in 05, and then at some point, I think it was maybe 08, I was, became a team leader, and that was all under Solicitor Gazet. And then when Dan Johnson got elected in 2010, and I was made a deputy solicitor in January of 2011. When were you a runner at Lewis Babcock? Oh man, I was I spent probably two summers and four Christmas breaks as a runner there back in the mid to late nineties. Okay. Let me tell uh, you, the softball team back in that day could put away some beer, my friend. There you go. Well, and I was the I clerked fortunately when I clerked there, it, it was for Cam Lewis and Keith, who I loved to death. I remember another attorney we were good friends with. He worked for he somehow he got put with Keith and he'd go in every day. Nine to five, doing the computer, sit there and working nonstop. Yeah. And I would be in the, in the other room with a couple other attorneys with Cam, and he'd come in there with stories. He'd ask questions about you. He'd make you laugh. He'd you know yell at you. But and I just remember the stark differences. Two of the greatest attorneys in South Carolina, but a lot of prosecutors and other attorneys have gone through that office and had great experiences. And and Joe is there now as a yeah. as a real attorney. Trying not to mess it up. That's right. It was and is still obviously a fantastic place to work. And back in those days, I mean, it was just, it was amazing between Cam and Keith and Daryl Hawkins and Fred Walters and Jimmy Knight. And, and then of course, Miss Doris running the front. It was a, it was a great place to be. I miss those days. Indeed, indeed. Well, on the trial subject, which we are presumably here for today, how many trials have you done now in this circuit? Honestly, I don't even know. There's some guys that count that. I know Johnny Gasser, for example, I think kept a log of all the cases he tried. And I know other people have done that. I've never done that. If I had to guess, I honestly don't even know. I'd say probably somewhere around 50, maybe something like that somewhere. It's just, they kind of run together after a while, especially when you get ones that you work up and you spend a lot of time on and then you start the case and then maybe it gets resolved by way of a plea you know, right at the beginning or halfway through or something like that. But I'd, well, I'd probably guess somewhere around 50 or so. Do you remember your first trial? I do. My first trial was a co-defendant burglary first case. I was second chairing the case with uh, senior assistant Luck Campbell, who uh, I had the good fortune of trying many cases with and learning from. And I remember Bob Mills, may he rest in peace, representing one of those Love co-defendants. Bob. Great guy. And the interesting thing about that that I recall was the one co-defendant who I don't remember represented them was found guilty of the burglary, burglary first. And the other co-defendant, Bob's guy, the jury said, well, he's not guilty on the burglary, but we're going to convict him of the larceny from taking the stuff from the house. And we all kind of looked at each other like, what? How? That doesn't really make any sense. But, you know, the jury spoke and that was what they said. So we had to stick with it. Well, so speaking of jury and 50, I mean, even if it's been 50, even five, getting jury trial experience is tough 
you know, just in general, the civil side is nearly impossible and the criminal side is difficult, especially with COVID. So having that type of experience, and I tell this to young attorneys who can get in the courtroom, even in magistrate court, it not only helps with when, as a trial attorney, but it helps with your negotiations beforehand to know that you are prepared to go to trial, that you know the process, the steps. So just take us to the beginning of before the trial. You got trial prep. What are you doing on the criminal side to get your trial ready? Is it a is it a week before? Is it a month before? What are you doing to get ready so that that the week before you're ready to go? So part of that's going to depend on what the case is and how complicated it is in terms of how far in advance you got to start that. But the key there is the preparation, as you said. However long it takes you got to be sure that you know your case inside and out. You know all the facts, all the details. You try to anticipate the arguments that the other side's going to make. You try to anticipate what they think your weaknesses are in the case. And the only way you can do that is to really scrutinize your case. And part of that is done, obviously, by talking to the key witnesses in the case ahead of time. So the earlier you can start on a trial prep, the better, just because you it creates the possibility of, of familiarity. And the more you have with that case, the more you can anticipate issues, the better prepared you can be so that when something comes up in the courtroom, either you're expecting it, or even if you weren't, it's still going to be somehow related to something that you've got ingrained in your head already. And one thing that and maybe think of that when you talk about, you know, trial prep and looking for weaknesses, a big one is witness credibility. And I remember at the solicitor's office, you've had a lot of staff there, paralegals who've been there for, you know, 20, 30 years, and they'll get, they'll look at that person, they'll have them speak. And then when, when they're done with that trial prep, they'll say, oh, that witness is a liar. They look bad. And yeah. I think it's important to rely on some of the staff who've been there longer, you know, because they're just like the jurors, just like attorneys are, but who might see another perspective. Is that, you know, do you see that a lot? I mean, there's so much to be said for the concept of institutional knowledge and that goes for any place that you're working or you're early on in your career just because somebody isn't the one asking the questions in the courtroom or whatever it might be doesn't mean they don't have valuable insight in fact they usually have great insight because they've been around for a long time they've seen a lot of things they've seen what works they've seen what doesn't work i mean you know my paralegal for example Mm -hmm. has been in four times as many trials as i have and Every single time, you know, we go to pick a jury or if a witness just finished up, you know, I'm going to look at her and say, how are we doing? And she's going to tell me, she's going to be like, eh, I didn't go so, you know, or or whatever it is, because she's seen it and she knows and she has that experience. So you do need to get input from those folks. You know, it's not the final word. Obviously, that decision is yours, but you got to rely on other people for help and get other insights. Don't forget your investigators. Don't don't forget. Well, I mean, you know, some some offices are blessed with some bloodhound investigators that can track down anybody, anytime, anywhere. (laughs) Speaking of that, Goldberg and I had a, well, I say we had a case. It was Goldberg's case. He was nice enough to invite me to second seat. It was the, it was a murder, but it was a stand your ground. And there was one witness who we didn't know if, if she was, has much to say or not, but we sent the subpoena. She was properly served. And refused to show up and we sent the two investigators out there they got a little kerfuffle and then they finally brought her into court because she refused to come and the judge put, put held her in jail for a little bit because she refused to testify and you know so it was a serious process so the investigators you know whether it's serving subpoenas and 
or, you know, tracking down witnesses, getting statements can be, you know, play a vital role in, in the case, you know. You know, that reminds me too of a trial I did with, with Miss Donnie Garfield and Miss Margaret Bodman, where we had a, a relatively critical witness, a corroborating witness who we couldn't get pre-trial and didn't show up until, I mean, we're day two of the trial and we're in the middle of a trial and all of a sudden, you know, person Y, I forget their name, was, was here. And so I had to go run out and hop in somebody's office and talk with them and I think their dad or that was there with them to shepherd them in to testify and then meet back with Margaret and Dolly and say, okay, I, I think we can put this person up. Not the ideal way to do it, but you can't choose your witnesses and, and they're finally there. A little bit of a curveball. So, uh, and, you know, it, it all ties together, right? So, I mean, that goes back to preparation in a way. Like in a perfect world, you would have been prepping that case way far in advance of trial. And you would have tried to find the witness, you know, weeks or even months before the trial date and would know ahead of time that you got that problem. It doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes you can't find the person and maybe it is right on the eve of trial. So you he didn't want to be found. There was a snitching situation. Right. Going on and yeah, was... but, but the earlier you start on that, the, the better, you know, your chances are of finding them, getting the information that you need, which again, if you really want to pull it back full circle, no kidding, it takes you back to Cam Lewis at Lewis mm -hmm. Babcock at your current place, because I can remember one of the first things he told me when I started there, he didn't create it. Obviously we've all heard it before, but he, he gave you, I think it's the seven P's uh, proper prior planning prevents piss poor performance. And I mean, yeah. he literally sat us down and told us that. And I've remembered that, you know, throughout, tried to remember that throughout my entire career. Well, and Goldberg, you mentioned, Two things. So we're going to talk about trials, but I want to skip to the very end of a trial, which makes every, and it doesn't matter. Even when I was a magistrate judge, I got nervous for the other parties that they would do a directed verdict motion. I'd have to rule on it. How do you, when I was at boot camp, the prosecutor at boot camp, and Joe probably heard the same thing. I can't remember the acronym, but there was something that a prosecutor that write down like, you know, four letters. So they would remember for jurisdiction. Is there something you do before you say the state rest to make sure that you've hit you know, all the elements of the jurisdiction and everything. Cause Absolutely. that makes everyone nervous. Absolutely. I actually use the indictment. You know, I've got my trial notebook in front of me. That's got all the reports and statements and everything else and the warrants and, and the, a copy of the indictment. And I literally will, as we go through the trial, I'll check it off. So, mm -hmm. you know, if the, the first officer on the scene shows up and he says, yeah, you know, I responded to 824, Bush River Road, and then, you know, well, is that in Richland County? Yes, sir. Well, then I'm checking off that we covered jurisdiction. I'm checking off Richland County. I'm checking off the date when he says the date. And I'll, I'll do that throughout, and I try to have my co-counsel do the same so that when you get to that point that you're about to rest, you can go back and you can see, and then you confer and you make sure, yeah, we covered that, we hit that, we're good. Yeah, I like having sticky notes for my elements and all that. Peel them off. Goldberg, one one last thing on trial prep. For the young attorneys, why do you think it's so important that when you meet with a witness, that if you're the lead prosecutor, that you meet with another witness in the room and they talk to you, whether it's an investigator or paralegal, why is that so important? Because I've made the mistake of not doing that a few times. Judge, that is an issue that I talk about all the time, and it happened in some, some form or fashion as recently as last week. And the reason is, as, as you know, and you, as most should know, there's an ethical issue with a lawyer being a witness in a case that they're participating in. And so what happens is if you, as the prosecutor, go and interview the victim by yourself, 
and they tell you something new or different that they didn't tell law enforcement before, you disclose it to the other side, then the witness takes the stand and they're questioned about it and they deny it. They deny telling you that they said that. Well, the defense has an opportunity to call a witness to then impeach them about that. And the only witness there is, is me. And I can't prosecute the case and be the witness. So if I had my victim advocate there, if I had my in-house investigator there, even if I had my co-counsel in there, somebody, anybody other than me, that could then, if it came to that, get on the stand and say what they said, then it's a non-issue. You just don't want to be the one who's having to account for that when you're the one handling the case. So it's always good to have somebody else, preferably a victim advocate or an investigator, police officer present, so that if somebody's got to take the stand and deal with it, it's going to be them and not you. And that's... That's great. And you're making me nostalgic for the staff at the Fifth Circuit and the victim advocates are wonderful folks in particular. Everybody's great there, but it's a, man, it's they have really, a tough job and they do an amazing job of it. And it's a thankless job. It. It's a thankless job. It really is for, so for, you know, for those of you out there who do end up in the prosecution field or are in it, you know, use your advocates, but treat them right, you know, take care of them because you can't do this job without them. No. Yeah, and that's no. right. And, and Goldberg, if you want to, if you talk with your young prosecutors about that, I, I have a perfect example. When I was a magistrate a couple of years ago, we had a long DV jury trial and the P, PD who was a great PD, very smart. He, he subpoenaed and tried to have the prosecutor on the case as a witness because they had talked with the potential victim and wanted to impeach him with it. Obviously it, it didn't work because it factually it, there was not that fit where he needed to be a witness, but they tried to put that prosecutor on the stand and exactly what you're talking about almost happened, but you know, we didn't go down that road. So it, it can happen, but. Well, and so the thing that happened recently was that the victim advocate in the, in the trial actually spoke to the victim about an issue. And as a result, the victim advocate did have to take the stand in the mm-hmm. case that happened a couple weeks ago. Well, it can happen. So, well, moving on from trial prep. So you got your case ready, your prep, you're ready to go. Give a play-by-play what happens Monday morning. And, and every circuit is different because some some circuits, the judges kind of control it more or less. You know, you have Langford, which is kind of out there, kind of not. In the Fifth Circuit, that's though. Still is that, is that, that thing's still, still around? Langford? Still, Langford's still around. around. Really? It depends on who you ask. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. You, okay. You tell me. It's, it's a hot potato. It gets passed around. Well, what happens on Monday morning if you're first up or second up? How does that process work with the jury trial? So here in Richland County, if you're first or second up or something like that on the trial docket, the first thing that's going to happen is at 930 in the morning, there's going to be a giant group of a couple, 300 folks that come into the courtroom for jury qualification. The lawyers go in the room, there's clerk of court staff in there, and then, of course, the judge takes the bench. And that's that's your general qualifications, your statutory rules about whether a juror is qualified to serve. Are they of certain age? You know, do they live in Richland County? Do they fall with any of the exemptions that get them out of jury duty? Like, have they served on a jury within the previous couple of years? Are they, are they you know, 78 years old? All that sort of stuff. So those questions are all asked. The jurors are either deemed to be qualified or not qualified based on those exemptions. And then everybody kind of goes their separate ways. That's about an hour plus long process, generally. Once that's done, then you can move into the smaller panel. 
where actually, and because that big jury qualification is for every trial going in the Richland County Courthouse that week. But then, you know, State v. Johnson's case or whatever it is, you go to courtroom 3A or whatever it might be, and you get the smaller panel and the clerk of court will randomly the computer generated list of about 50 names those jurors will come in the courtroom and you'll move forward with um, further jury selection there which that'll be a, a little bit more specific we don't have attorney driven voir dire here in south carolina so not, not yet not, not yet. yet it might be well, soon well um, you heard of there was a, a civil case that was castle mcveigh i believe uh, it was med mal something but they were allowed to do some some attorney led one year. You know, uh, generally speaking, right. Generally speaking, we don't have that where, so, you know, the. Well, let me pause there, you right. Yeah, sure. Let me pause you right there, Goldberg. So we talk about Vaudier and you talk about just for our listeners, Joe, why don't you explain to our listeners, maybe who don't do it, the Vaudier and what the difference between attorney, what does that mean? Attorney led versus judge led? What does that mean? Well, the, the, the standard way in South Carolina is the judge asks the questions and you can vet the questions ahead of time. There's some standard things and then, both sides can, you know, suggest, request some questions to the judge, work it out before the jury come, pool comes in, and the judge asks the questions, and the attorney's going to take their notes and make their strikes accordingly. Other states, and on TV, you usually have the lawyers up there asking all sorts of questions about folks' impartiality and what have you, and, and it makes for good TV drama, but we just don't do it in South Carolina, but we may start doing that soon. I don't know. Well, and then Goldberg, so with voir dire, do you have, because I remember when I was a solicitor, I didn't have anything, we had a general voir dire, but is there something, do you have general voir dire you have, or you, every case, do you have something different? I mean, most judges have a standard list of questions that they have that both sides are, are cool with, but then depending upon the case, each side, like Joe said, is going to have some proposed questions to add to it, you know, say, honestly, most recently, you know, asking questions about whether anybody in the jury pool gives money to victims' rights groups or defendants' rights groups like the Innocence Project or Black Lives Matters or Blue Lives Matters, you know, all those kinds of things. The, the trick is, is generally if one of them's going to be kind of favoring one side, the judge is probably going to ask the corresponding question for the other side to make it right. fair. So, you know, we... We, we have some standard ones, but it really just kind of depends on the case and whether any of it's relevant. I mean, like if it's a drug case, you know, you would have more specific questions about people's feelings about drugs. Like if it's a marijuana case, you might ask that the judge ask what people, if anybody has strong opinions about the legality of marijuana. Yeah, you're not going to need to do that, you know. With our, our former colleague, Animal Cruelty Trial, where he asked uh, how many folks, it's Animal Cruelty Trial, four, four felony charges of death to animals. As, as, as Mr. Schnee asked, you know, how many people here consider dogs a member of the family? And we had half the room raise their hand. They're pretty good. Uh, that's a good question. I mean, that's a fair Bees, question. Bees, is this the second or third uh, podcast of this series in which you've referenced that animal cruelty trial? Did I use that reference before? I was thinking in my head if I had said I mean, it before or not. I mean, this podcast is on my regular rotation, so I mean, I feel like I heard you talking about it once Goldberg. before. That's all right. That's all right. No, I was talking about the the expert witness because we had a forensic veterinarian, uh, which is novel, 
And then that other that you know, work it in. I don't have the fifty trials you do. I'm not do. saying it's not uh, meritorious of comment. I just wanted to make sure that was the same and case or not. That was don't a worry. good win. Don't, don't worry, Joe don't and I him, only have my, my four count felony knockdown there. We only have small claims to fame, so you got to give us what we can have. All right. <laughs> and that that animal, it, we we hear about that every day. You know, that it gets bigger and bigger, like the fish. You know, it's always it was it was just one count but now it's up to no, four, four. So. small claims to fame i mean you know one of you is a, is a retired judge as it were <laughs> you know he's now you. now starting his own practice <laughs> and the other is, is a member of one of the most profound law firms in this state's history i mean well we on. couldn't have done it without your leadership goldberg you yeah, know yeah, that yeah, yeah. i feel like this well, entire section flattery, of the flattery doesn't get you anywhere anymore guys come on we just need a segue to coyote that's another matter Let's get back to the trial. So we've got our voir dire, as Kobe likes to pronounce in French, and we then go into the trial, openings and, and whatnot. You, you have a preference, open, close, you memorize things, what you do? I mean, I honestly like to do both. Like, I don't usually in one of, in my trials do both. You know, my co-counsel probably do one or the other. But personally, as far as actually carrying it out, I enjoy both. I, I did a lot of openings when I was coming up, when I was second seat in some trials. And I feel like there's a lot you can take from that and apply to when you are doing closings as well. They are very different. Well, tell uh, us, and, explain the difference and what and what's a good opening. What makes and for both sides, or what's a good opening for the defense? What's a good opening for the state to keep I mean, the jury's on, attention? On the state side, it's really about giving the jury a preview of what they're going to see. You don't need to go through every single piece of evidence that that you're going to present in the case, but you kind of liken it to a movie trailer where you watch a two-minute movie trailer on some summer blockbusters coming out, you've got a good idea what that movie's about, but you don't know all the nuts and bolts of it because if you did, you wouldn't go see the movie. So mm-hmm. it, you kind of kind of liken it to that. You want to give them a preview of what the law is and what they're going to hear and what you're going to ask them to do throughout the trial and the things you want them to pay attention to. On the defense side, it really kind of depends on the case. You know, if it, it might be a case that Frankly, the defense isn't sure what their defense is going to be. So they may come out and just talk about reasonable doubt in opening and for the jury to pay attention to, to the details and, and, and pay attention to what the state doesn't talk about. So real kind of vague general concepts. But if it's, say, a self-defense case, then they're going to come out and be like, yeah, my client killed him because, you know, he was being threatened and acting in self-defense. And they're just going to put it out on the table right away. So how many times have you had objections either to you or from you in an opening? the kind of no-no of, of, of courtesy. I, I may have objected to someone in opening before. I don't recall specifically if or when I did that. I feel like I may have done it once. I know it's happened to me before, but not very often. I do recall, and I'm not going to say his name, but I do recall a, a public defender at the time. He was a good guy now. I mean, nice guy, good guy. But back then he was a little feisty, and he would intentionally stand up and object object so you know it, it sometimes it's necessary sometimes you got to do it well let me ask goldberg i have a rule of thumb that i completely made up myself it it came from nowhere but what i noticed both at the solicitor's office and just in magistrate court is that sometimes openings can be too long and so i've mm-hmm. i made up this rule of thumb that they shouldn't on the criminal side they shouldn't be longer than whatever the time it carries in years should be the minutes how long it should be. So if it's a murder, 30 years, 30 minutes. That's pretty good. If, if it's a magistrate court case, 30 days. So you're looking uh, at 30 seconds max. Yeah, I like it. And if that's max, it should be half that. What is that a good rule of thumb? 
for openings, not closings, for openings. I mean, it's, that's a little unforgiving with the 30-second opening, i got to say. I will go, but I'll tell yeah. you, Magic Court, if you're more than two minutes on a DUI, you've lost the, you've lost the plot already. Well, that's a good point, though, because it, it is about you got to try to keep the jury's attention. So, you know, you don't want to drone on and on. Or, and that goes for closing, too. But if you go on and on, then you will lose their attention. And so in opening, to your point, yeah, obviously, I think the more complicated the case, the higher the stakes, the longer the opening should be. But you're right. It is easy to get carried away. I don't know why a defense opening would ever be more than five, ten minutes, honestly. Like, I really don't. Um, Let me ask you this, Goldberg. You've you've been around, and I'm ready to have a you know I'm a criminal defense attorney now. And the big thing I'm going to do, and I can't wait to have my first trial, is and correct me if I'm wrong, but in the rules, the defense doesn't have to give their opening until they don't have to until after the state closes. Correct? They can say. I have never seen that happen. I know that the defense can certainly waive opening, and I have seen that happen. And um, only a, a once or twice, but I've never seen it actually occur any other time other than right after the state. Well, I, I gave you a little small one that I like on, on trimming the fat from openings. And this is from Margaret Bondman. I was writing out my opening that I was going to do and I'm Joe Barry and then yada, you She's like, she doesn't care who you are. You know, start talking about the case. You don't need to tell them who you are. They know who you are by now. And I kind of like that. that. That is a huge pet peeve of mine as well. But when you stand up there, especially on as a prosecutor, don't introduce yourself to the jury is the first thing you say. And that, and that just goes back to keeping their attention. They've been there all morning. They sat through this big qualification. They sat through selection. They've waited in the back while y'all did pretrial motions that they weren't a party to. They might have had to go eat lunch and come back. They don't want to be there. They finally come in. The judge gives them this long instruction about what's going to happen. And then they turn to you and say, all right, Mr. Goldberg, Mr. Goldberg, he just said my name. You may proceed with your opening statement. Why would I then go up there and say when they're hanging on what I'm about to say that my first words are my name is Dan Goldberg. I, I mean, right. I would never do that. So you get up there and you make it count. You say something to get get their attention right away. If you want to come back after a minute or so and then introduce yourself to tie it in somehow, fine. But at the beginning, when you have their full attention, you got to take advantage of it and, and grasp that attention and make it work to your advantage. Well, on, on part of making it count, I see we're reaching towards the 30-minute mark. I feel like this may need to be a two-parter where we bring you back to talk about the rest of the trial and, and other That's a great idea. related idea. notes. Guys, we, you, I mean, you know, I'm here for you guys. You know? Well, well, the, well. Let's we'll finish up openings and we'll end there. But with young attorneys, what's something? I was always worried. I was worried I was going to, you know, talk my way into a mistrial in the opening statements. Ooh, Is there something wow. that you tell young attorneys don't talk or don't say or avoid or just kind of let them go at it? I mean, you you want to avoid something that there's a reasonable possibility that. Burden shifting, that, that is something you got to be careful of, of making sure that you are not putting it on the other side to prove that they didn't do what they're being accused of. It's the state's job to prove somebody guilty or to have a jury find them guilty based on the evidence. So the defendant, as you know, doesn't have to prove anything. So you got to be careful about, about burden shifting. You got to be careful about making promises that you can't keep. And that's just from a practical and legal standpoint. From a practical standpoint, jurors don't like it. Some of them are going to remember that you stood up in the opening and said, 
you're going to hear this. And then they never heard it. And they're going to be like, wait a minute. He never told me that. And the defense attorney better as well remind them of that too down the road. Absolutely. And from a legal standpoint, you know, it can cause problems if you get up there and, and make promises about how this fits within the law or doesn't. And then no evidence to that effect comes out in front of the jury. So you got to be careful about what you say, which is why you keep it as a preview of the evidence and not every single thing you're going to present. Well, on that note, we've, you know, we've just finished with the opening statement. So you got the whole trial coming. So, you know, part one of this has been, I think, a great learning experience about getting that trial to the, to the, before the evidence is even introduced. You got the prep, you got the, the day of the jury qualifications, Wadir, and then opening, and then you got the real stuff. So next time we'll talk wow. about the rest of the trial. And I also want to ask you about, you know, some of the, the legends. You got the Jack Swirlings, the Harpootlians, the Johnny Gasser you know, what they do that makes them so great and so different. So we'll talk about that next time. But look, Joe, you got a question. No, no questions. I'm just, I'm curious to hear about Goldberg's strategy of buttoning his suit jacket versus unbuttoning. You know, he's a- Save it, Goldberg. Save it for the guy. next episode. Yeah, he's, he I keeps mean, up, well, you know? if you promise me that we'll do a part two about this, and I'll tell you everything you want to know about buttoning the jacket, about what color shoes you should be wearing in trial, Hint, hint. Oh, no brown shoes. Uh, well, we got we got a lot going for part two. We're going to talk about from how to dress, how to prepare when it comes to cross and direct examination, expert witnesses, and some of the best trial lawyers you've ever gone against. We're excited about that. So we thank you for appearing here, and we look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thanks for having me, fellas. I'm looking forward to part two, and uh, y'all be safe this weekend. Thanks for Be well, Goldie. Thanks, man.